0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. We turn to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis chapter 37. It's also our text for this afternoon, Genesis chapter 37. We're we'll be beginning our scripture reading at verse one to the end of the chapter. there the word of God reads as follows. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright While your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see of all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they looked, or as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him To Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes, he went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. The love congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, during the last months of 2006, Pastor Bradenhoff preached on the New Testament, specifically on the Gospel, according to Mark, Now that we are in a new year, our focus will shift back to the Old Testament, specifically to the last part of the book of Genesis. And you might wonder about the switch, why the movement back and forth between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Well, the main reason has to do with the fact that your pastors are of the conviction that we need to preach the whole counsel of God. In other words, the preaching agenda is not a matter of us currying to your favorites or to you listening to our favorite books and passages. No, it's a matter of all of us together submitting ourselves to all of the scriptures. Old Testament, New Testament, prophetic, historical, poetic material, gospels, epistles. We need in due time to hear it all. Our spiritual diet must be as rich and as varied as the Word of God itself. And so today, beloved, and in the coming weeks, we move from the gospel to history, from the New Testament to the Old Testament, from ancient times to even more ancient times. Back where we go. But why so far back? Why so far back to the first book of the Old Testament? Well, you may know that for some time we have been trying to work our way through this first book of the Bible. And not so long ago, we saw the Lord and his dealings with the patriarch, the third patriarch, Jacob. And you realize that leaves some unfinished business with the next major figure, namely with Joseph. Joseph and the closing chapters of the book of Genesis. And so in a way, you can say it's on to Joseph. But more accurately yet, it's on to the Lord's dealings with Joseph. And of course, these coming chapters have a lot to say about family dynamics, and we shall see that. These coming chapters also have a lot to say about God's marvelous, mysterious providence. And we shall see that too. But more than anything else, what we have before us is the Lord and his redemptive program. And we shall see how he continues to lead it, to unfold it, to develop it, and to guide it. And so really it's the Lord's character and the Lord's work that form the focus of our preaching. That's the kind of focus that also enriches your life and my life every day. So, beloved, I'd like to preach to you on the following theme, a bad start for a future deliverer, and we are going to note how Joseph is loved, hated, and sold. So very simply, a bad start for a future deliverer. We're going to see how Joseph is loved, hated, and sold. Well, beloved, you'll notice that Genesis 37 opens with a kind of double introduction. First, we receive the news that Jacob is still living in the land of his father Isaac, which is the land of Canaan. And second, we are told that we are now going to see what happens to Jacob's line, Jacob's posterity. But that's really the meaning of the phrase, this is the account or this is the generation of Jacob. It really is going to tell us how things unfold further for Jacob and his family. Well, how do things continue to unfold? Well, notice that immediately our attention is directed to Joseph, a young man of 17 years of age. Who is Joseph? Well, most of the children here, I'm sure, can tell you who Joseph is. Joseph is one of the youngest sons of Jacob, And Joseph also is the son of Rachel, the wife that Jacob loved most. You may recall some years earlier, there had been a lot of drama in the tents of Jacob. He he thought he was marrying Rachel, but he woke up one morning, and I don't know exactly how this happens, but it happened. He woke up one morning and he discovered instead of Rachel, it was Leah. His father-in-law Laban had tricked him. Because he really wanted Rachel, Jacob agreed to work another seven years for his father-in-law. That's 14 years of labor for one wife. Well, Jacob paid it. As far as we know, he paid it rather gladly. And so he woke up one morning with two wives, actually two sisters, but that's not all. He also woke up with two very competitive wives. And the competition played itself out in the children that were subsequently born. Leah gave birth to Reuben, then Simeon, next to Levi, then to Judah. Meanwhile, Rachel has none. In desperation, she gives Bilhah, her maid, to Jacob, and Bilhah gives birth to Dan and Naphtali, And Leah, seeing perhaps that the gap is starting to narrow, then gives her maid, Zilpah, to Jacob, and she gives birth to Gad and Asher. And then Leah herself receives more children, Issachar, Zebulun, and even a daughter called Dinah. And meanwhile, Rachel still has none. But then we're told, Scripture says, that the Lord remembered Rachel, listened to her prayers, and opened her womb. Finally, she received a child, a son, and she called him Joseph. Sometime later, she conceived again and gave birth to another son, and then she died. And we know that as she was dying, she named the second son Benoni, son of my trouble or son of my sorrow. Thankfully, Jacob changed the poor fellow's name to Benjamin, so he became the son of my right hand. Now, beloved, if you look at it, that's quite the story. And it's a story that tells us right away that in many respects, Jacob's family life was like a circus. A circus of competition and jealousy, all driven ultimately by the great desire to be loved. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. The scripture says that Leah loved Jacob desperately. Did Rachel love him too? We don't truly know whether she loved him as much as Leah loved him. What we do know, however, is that Jacob always loved Rachel more and as a result, Scripture tells us that he also loved her children more. And that becomes rather obvious. Verse 3 states, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. Obviously, Jacob had his favorites. Obviously, Jacob did not love all of his children equally and that becomes even more obvious for look it says in verse 3 that he made a richly ornamented robe for Joseph Jacob the patriarch becomes Jacob the tailor and Joseph's the only one to receive such a, a robe from his father Joseph is singled out for special attention, special honor, special love. Now, when you think of it, what is that but an utterly wrong approach to one's children? And even an act, I would dare say, of utter stupidity. It just shows you that in some things, Jacob, in spite of his old age, hasn't learned much. Surely he, he must have known that favoritism had been a huge problem in his own family. The fact that Isaac loved Esau more and that Rebecca loved Jacob more had been the cause of no end of trouble and sorrow and separation. And you would think that Jacob would have learned something from all of this. learn not to make the same mistake. But he doesn't learn. He repeats the sins of his parents. He singles out one son among the many for special elevated attention. And indeed he does something that some parents have been doing ever since with disastrous results. I'm sure you've heard the stories as well of how some parents lavish a lot of love and attention and care on one child and forget about all the other children. And of how that sets off a vicious form of competition among the children And of how that ignites a real craving to be loved and a desperate need to be affirmed. Of how this scars children for life. Do you know what one of the saddest things is in life? Is to hear someone say, my parents never loved me. My parents loved my brother, or they loved my sister much more than they ever loved me. You see, there is this hunger for parental love in the hearts of each of us. And when it is not given, it leaves pain, deep, sharp pain. And so, for all of you parents, there's a natural question that arises out of our text this afternoon. Do you love your children? Do you love them all equally? Oh, I know they may not all be equally lovable. But that doesn't matter. Your business as a parent is to love them all Alike, All the same. Do not play favorites. Do not be like Jacob. For look next at what happens when you do. Verse 4 states, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and they could not speak a kind word to him. Now really, if you think of it for a moment, if you step back and look at it, you say, well, really, their anger should have been directed at Father Jacob. He's the real culprit. Only it was not, and it never is. It's directed at Joseph. Usually when a child is loved more, he or she cannot help it. Often they don't ask for it, seek it, or even want it, but they may get it anyway for one or other reason. But nevertheless, in spite of their innocence in the matter, they invariably become the objects of their siblings' scorn and hatred. That's what happened to Joseph. His brother blamed him for their father's sin. He became the object of their outrage. They hated him. Now, of course, there's more to the story. Things are a bit more complicated, for it has to be said that Joseph, in turn, was not the most diplomatic of brothers. Before he received the special coat from Dad, his brothers already considered him to be a tattletale. You go back, for example, to verse 2. There were told that at one time he had been tending the flocks together with his brothers or his half-brothers, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, And apparently they did something wrong. We're not told what it is, but Joseph made a beeline for Jacob and he gave a bad report about them. Was it warranted? Was it accurate? I don't know. That really matters. What matters is that Joseph got them into a pile of trouble. And that's strike number one against him. Yes, and thereafter, Joseph receives this fancy coat. Now, what did that represent? Never mind that he may not even have asked for it, or perhaps not even have wanted it. The moment that Joseph puts on that fancy ornamented vestiment and struts around the camp, it's strike number two. And thereafter, beloved, follows all that business with those dreams. First, Joseph has an agricultural dream. He tells them that in his dream, they were all out in the field binding sheaves of grain. And, and suddenly his sheaf got up, stood upright. And what did all the other sheaves of grain do? They gathered around him and they bowed down before him. And he used to say that incited his brothers. Here was one of their youngest brothers and he was telling them that one day he's going to rank above them and they're all going to be bowing down to him. And you can almost imagine the reactions. Who does this pipsqueak think that he is? What conceit, what arrogance. And in the end, it only fueled their hatred. Did Joseph learn from this brotherly rebuke? No. For look in verse 9 of our text, he's at it again. He's had another dream and he just has to tell it to his brothers. This time it's a celestial dream. He says, listen, I had another dream. And this time the sun, moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now that takes the cake. Not just his brothers, but also his father get into the act. They all gang up on him and they rebuke him. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? This is too much even for Jacob to stomach. The favorite son has crossed the line. But you know, as far as the brothers are concerned, Joseph has more than just crossed the line. These dreams represent strike three and Joseph is out. And animosity continues to exist in the tents of Abraham. Think of it, beloved, Isaac versus Ishmael, Jacob versus Esau, Joseph versus his brothers. The enmity continues. Only one more saying, it says at the end of verse 11 that his father kept the matter in mind. That reminds you of Mary later on keeping things in mind as well. Obviously, for some reason or other, Father Jacob did not forget these dreams of his son Joseph. And of course, later on, they'd make a whole lot of sense. So, beloved, what do we have in our text thus far? I would say we have an unwise father who plays favorites and we have a teenage son who doesn't know when to keep his mouth shut. Now in saying that, I realize, I realize, and you can see that as well, there are some commentators that take all of this and and they put a very positive spin on it all and a very positive spin on Joseph. But I don't know about you, but every time I read the text, I think the positive spin is wishful thinking. It doesn't wash. You cannot, just like that, absolve Joseph of his teenage blunders. In the case of his brothers doing wrong, he he should have confronted them and not Father Jacob. And in the case of his dreams, he should have done what his father did, which was keep them in mind. You don't need a B.A. in psychology to know that telling these kind of dreams to your brothers, your older brothers and your family, will create a nasty backlash. As real and as true as they may have been, they still needed to be handled with care and wisdom. And so here, no doubt, children, is a, a word for you. Here's a word about how not to act with respect to your brothers and sisters. Bad behavior on the part of your siblings is not to be handled by running to dad but by speaking up and telling your siblings what you think about their wrong behavior. And I would say only in extreme situations and a failure to listen do you justify telling your parents. And at the same time, beware of the kind of image you project. If it's one of superiority and arrogance, it will come back to bite you. It'll create a backlash of jealousy and hatred. Look at Joseph. And so it is, beloved, that the stage is set. You might say set for what? Well, it's set for disaster. And it comes. It comes, for example, in the verses 12 to 36. One day, Father Jacob decides to send Joseph out to look for his brothers and to see how they and the flocks are doing. And notice with nary hesitation or reservation on his part, Joseph sets out to find them. And coming to Shechem, he cannot find them there, so he's told he should try Dothan. And he goes off to Dothan. And sometime later, his brothers see him approaching. And notice their reaction, their reaction is venomous. It says they saw him and they plotted to kill him. And note, they wanted to kill him especially because those dreams still rankled them. Reuben, however, intervenes. He suggests they throw him into a cistern. And meanwhile, it's his intention to come back later on, haul him out of the cistern, give him a real scolding, and send him home with his tail between his legs back to dad. But in the meantime, the brothers agree. So when Joseph comes closer, they seize him, they strip him of his robe, that special robe of many colors, and and you might ask yourself at this point in the text, why in the world is he still wearing it? Doesn't he know, doesn't he sense that, that his brothers hated him because of it? How can he be so dense? In any case, they strip him and they throw him into the cistern. And once the job is done, Reuben goes off elsewhere to tend to other business. But then as he's gone, and while the brothers are eating and no doubt Joseph is screaming his lungs out in the background, a caravan of Ishmaelites or Midianites traders approach. And suddenly Judah has a brainwave. Why kill or leave Joseph to die and forever have his blood on our hands? Why not sell him instead? And that's what they decide to do. They sell him for 20 shekels of silver. And of course, sometimes later, Reuben returns and finds Joseph gone. And he's almost beside himself. And I'm being told what he, what's happened. Uh, the brothers seem to devise a false plan. Father Jacob is given Joseph's special robe, bathed in blood, and he jumps to the rather obvious conclusion that an animal, a wild animal, must have attacked him and devoured him. And then he goes into a deep, inconsolable mourning. No one can reach him. The father who loses his favorite son acts as if he has only one son. And also one might add the father who in his younger days had been a pretty good deceiver himself is himself deceived by his own sons. And while all of that is happening, beloved, Joseph is traveling. The Midianites are taking him to Egypt, and there he's sold to an Egyptian official called Potiphar. Well, beloved, all in all, it's quite a tale. It's a tale that has enough twists and turns in it to make for a very good movie script. But still we need to ask, what does it really mean? Is it nothing more than an interesting, entertaining and intriguing story with all kinds of tensions and conflicts? In actual fact, it's more than that. We need to dig deeper. We need to dig deeper into the plan of God. And what is that plan? Well, turn to Genesis 15, the verses 13 and 14, where it says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation, they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You know, already, beloved, in Genesis 15, God is promising Abraham a great nation. And he says that that great nation is, in turn, going to be a source of blessing for all the nations of the earth. In other words, out of this nation is going to come the great Messiah the great Savior. But before he comes, there will be exile and there will be slavery. And so who will look after God's people during all those long years of exile, those 400 years? Who will lead them and guide them? God will. And God will do so by raising up leaders and deliverers. Yes, and Joseph is one of them. Perhaps the first of them. And so we begin to understand, beloved, that what happens here in Genesis 37 and what is told us throughout the ages, this isn't something insignificant or accidental or or merely to pick the curiosity of the saints living years later. No, Beloved, already here in Genesis 37, God is shaping and He's preparing for His people a future deliverer future deliverer unlike almost every other deliverer that he's ever put together. when well, in a way, we cannot help but see in him already a connection with what happens to the, the greatest deliverer of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. For think for a moment, the Lord Jesus Christ, much loved by his Father, much hated By his brethren. Sold. Not 20 shekels of silver, but 30 pieces of silver. You see, there are all these parallels. And we're going to see more of them as we continue on with these chapters in the last part of Genesis. These parallels between Joseph and Christ. But in those parallels, there are also very defined differences. For while... This father has only one begotten son. He loves all of his sons and daughters with the same love and the same intensity. Isn't that what Scripture says? We all are heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. It isn't as if he gets more love It isn't as if he gets more grace. It isn't as if he gets more rights. Now the scripture says we are all members of the family of God. And beloved, while this son is hated, he is hated without a cause. Unlike Joseph, unlike all other deliverers, human deliverers, there is in him no duplicity. There is in him no conceit. There is in him no arrogance. No insensitivity, I would even dare say no stupidity. He's the perfect son. And finally, while this son is sold... He's not sold into slavery. He's sold into death. He's sold to die. To die in order that you and I might live today and live forever. And so, beloved, while we have to keep an eye on the obvious aspects of this text... Let's not neglect to see what God is doing and and working out on that deeper redemptive level. He's setting the stage for the exile of his people. He's already preparing for them a deliverer. The potter is working the clay. He never stopped working then and he never stops working today. And indeed, he's never going to stop until that day when the redemption of his people is accomplished completely. A greater than Joseph is coming again. And it's in that hope and that confidence that we work and live and face the future also in 2007. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.